and welcome to the midweeks. I'm back. Uh, it's been a while, and thank you. We've been taking a fairly long break, in part, for international travel and expanding our family through adoption, and it's been amazing. And so if you've been a part of that and been praying for us, I just want to say thank you very much. Otherwise, thanks for your patience that we've been waiting for the next midweek to add to the collection. So I want to do something a little different today. I know I've got Romans to complete still, but um, that's not kind of on my brain at the moment. So uh, what I want to do is I want to share a new story and then a scripture verse from Psalm 139. And the new story is kind of interesting. I read a little bit about and uh and it makes me wonder about what's going on. So the new story is this. So apparently the Miss America uh, pageant, beauty pageant, has decided that it's axing the swimsuit competition part. Uh, now, personal disclaimer, I don't ever think I've seen a uh, beauty pageant swimsuit competition and praise God and thank you. And I have no intention to ever do any kind of research online about any of this stuff. Um, this is just not my bag. But, you know, as you re- kind of have read the story, I've read some part of the story, whoever's in charge of these things, instead of, uh, you know, uh, wanting to have that portion of the thing, which is there for obvious reasons, right? Like it's a bit of a ratings boost and there you go. Um, a woman wearing not very many clothes on television, there you go. And uh, which is not a great thing. Instead, they're going to focus on like uh, women's intellects and achievements, which is fine. I don't know how it'll do as uh, as an event anymore, but we'll see. Maybe it'll be great. Um, I'm not planning on finding out though. Anyhow, what it made me think about is just the, the current movements that have been going on um, the me too movement has been happening for a while as uh women have been i guess coming out to uh, complain about treatment from men especially with sexual improprieties or bullying or any of that kind of thing um, and then now this kind of push to transform an event which for decades has um looked at women's bodies and now is is trying to change that and remove the body's part and insert more time looking at uh, accomplishments. Um, It made me think of a scripture from 1 Timothy. And this is what Paul says. He's talking to uh, Timothy, who's his uh, spiritual son and co-worker who is leading a church in Ephesus. And he says to them, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable attire with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, so there seems to be a parallel to me to what Paul is calling the church to act like and what some people in uh, North American culture are calling on the world to become like. Uh, They're calling on men to not be pushy and violent um, and overbearing and compelling and selfish, but instead to be respectful. Kind of like Paul says, lift up your hands uh, in prayer with with holiness and not anger quarreling, meaning don't use your hands to like beat people up or force people to do things or grab people. Instead, use them for prayer with godly behavior. And for the women, uh, don't show off your looks so much, but instead do what is uh, honor good works. So this is, it seems to me like there's a bit of a parallel. They're saying, guys, uh, 
<laughs> behave yourselves. They, they wouldn't use the word godliness because this isn't coming from quarters that care about God or holiness, but there's a strong desire for it. And they're kind of sick of what you get when you don't want God or godliness. And now the women are even saying like, we're, we're going to give up on this whole um, women just trying to to show off uh, sexuality and attractiveness thing and start going to concentrate on good works. So it's like, what, but, but, you know, this is exactly what Paul called the church to as it came to know God, because honestly, it's not like um, rejecting scripture's call for men and women's behavior here it, to reject it and to do the opposite. That doesn't actually lead to good stuff. It's not like you say, oh, forget this whole men not quarreling thing. We want the quarreling. That doesn't make the world a better place. And forget the women not just trying to show off their bodies and, and, uh, and do the whole, like, the world's my catwalk routine. That doesn't make a world, the world a better place, too, when people are living like that. Like, uh, humility for both sexes is, is, actually does make the world a better place. And so Paul is, is right. Now, one of my questions here is, as Paul goes on here, he, he writes some of the most controversial verses in the Scripture for our age, where they weren't always controversial, but they are for us and where we're at in North America. And it says, you know, um, encourages women to learn with submissiveness at church, and, and it calls for male leadership in the church, and especially in the teaching leading roles. Now, and what I wonder is, um, if there is going to actually become, be, start happening in the secular world, a call for this kind of thing. It is the logical extension. If they're going to be calling for men to behave themselves and for women to, um, to act with humility and look towards character and this stuff, it, it's, I think that there is actually a room to believe that sometime you might actually get a secular version of a call like Paul is saying here for men to take their place and lead. Why do I say that? Um, because the absence of that call isn't working very well. Okay, every woman, a sex object, and every guy, um, a selfish jerk, it's not working out. It's just not working out very well at all. And this is where all this anger and frustration, all these like kind of knee-jerk changes are, I think, coming from. And so um, what Paul is calling for here, where a church full of men who will responsibly lead um, is is actually the hunger of the age as well. And um, two little details that that are evidence that we're heading in these directions. I heard on, reported on a news site that I think generally reports the news well, that there was a recent Harvard um, study that their conclusion was that one of the greatest indicators of levels of violence, I think it was gun violence, in a major city is the presence of father figures. One of the greatest predictors of levels of gun violence, it could be just violence in general, but I think it was gun violence, in major American cities is the presence of father figures, not just fathers. You know, every time there is a human being, there was a father, just biologically there had to be. But father figures, men who act like dads, men who act like they take responsibility, they they lead in good behavior, they set an example, they call people to to live in a good way. That That's the main predictor. So not just that there's tons of dads. There can be dads missing, but if there are neighborhood father figures like coaches um, who are there doing that work, that is one of the biggest predictors of, um, of gun violence in a city, which is stunning, which is amazing and stunning in one sense, but not entirely um, 
if you think about it and if you think about your life. Another thing that I'm just wondering is, you know, when, when the, the Me Too movement, if they're honest with themselves, I think what they, they ultimately want men to act like is like a good dad. Okay? Now, forgive me. This is offensive. But I think they, they actually, as a movement, want men to act like a good dad. Someone who isn't there to be selfish but cares about them and wants to see them succeed, to help them grow and succeed, okay? That, that's fatherhood. Men who are responsible, present, attentive, and ready to sacrifice in order for daughters to grow and succeed and to, to be fruitful. Like, isn't that what you want? Like, men to act like good fathers and not sexual predators and not bullies and not control freaks. Like, isn't that ultimately the characteristic? And we have a big absence of uh, good father figures um, in the celebrity world. It's almost, I mean, the recent news is like those who were on TV as good father figures were turned out to be total dirtbags in their personal lives. And so, yeah, it's a mess. However, isn't the truth ultimately that what people are crying out for is men to act like good dads to the women around them or good brothers or, but really like good dads, not patronizing and not um, looking down, but, but the wanting to raise, to contribute to somebody doing well. You know, a good father wants to see his daughter grow up and to um, be, you know, appear in a sense, a woman who is uh, wise and, and, fruitful and successful, and um, they can have a good, thoughtful conversation, um, and neither of them ending up treating each other like dirt. Like, I, that's, what does it mean to be a good dad? And doesn't that overlap with how um, every grown woman wants to be treated by a guy? And not like, I don't mean patronizingly. I don't mean like looking down and go to your room kind of stuff, but I just mean like somebody who's not just wondering what you look like in a swimsuit, but want to see you do well and to be responsible for their responsibilities in helping to make that happen if they have any. So that's my question. Is the world actually reaching out for the, the counsel that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy to give to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago? Probably, because that's what actually works by God's grace as we look to Christ. Now, y- you can't build a utopia without Christ. It, this is Christ's universe, and you cannot reject God and keep the world. It's his world. He, he, he made every part of it. It's all about him. It reflects him. So we can't ditch God and keep good stuff. But you can kind of see in the world, like people, people are, there's these waves of actually longing for the character of God to be expressed in other people. So there you go. Something to think about. Okay, let's move on to a different scripture. This is from my reading today. Uh, Psalm 139 is probably my favorite psalm. I just love it. Uh, It really ministers to my soul. What does that mean? It really, the truth in it just gets under every single layer I have right down to how I love to relate to God, known and knowing him. And um, again, it's like being with my father. He totally knows me, totally gets me. And and that knowledge and that nearness is not... um, a frightening thing. By faith in Jesus Christ, this is not like waking up one day and finding out that the the feds or the RCMP know everything you've done. They've searched your computer. They know your search history. They know your financial dealings. They know everything. Ah, no, this is a God who by grace made you and loves you 
and has sought you out and chosen you and saved you through Jesus and given you spirit. And just David is meditating on how near God is. And the theological word for what David is talking about is, is um, omnipresence and omniscience. And I like theological words, okay? And I think you should too. Um, sometimes I wonder if it's just kind of like a spiritual laziness or a fear of shame, of intellectual failure. Maybe you did bad at school or something, so you just wrote off learning things. I, I don't think a Christian should have any kind of fear or hesitation or resistance to learning new things. Like we're disciples, which mean, means that we're in this lifestyle of learning for the rest of our lives. And so learn something and, and try not to let anything get in the way. Um, omniscience means the ability to know all things. And omnipresence is God's ability to be everywhere in some sense. And and the Bible's a bit mysterious about God's presence. Like he is everywhere in one sense. And then he can also make his presence especially known um, through his incarnation, through um, the presence of the Spirit, through the indwelling of the Spirit. And so it's mysterious sometimes. And by that, I mean like we can't, you can't write a science textbook about it, but these are realities. God is everywhere. And God knows everything, and David is uh, meditating on these truths in a way where it's building up his worship. And I just want to focus on a few verses or a few lines. It's where David says this. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, the this is a poem, and so David uses imagery. And so as we're reading scripture, it's good to ask yourself, like, am I reading a, a history? Am I reading a letter? Or am I reading a poem? Because if you're reading a poem, you need to let the poet be poetic. And poetry works by imagery. Uh, poetry is writing that is super dense with uh, imagery and usually in some kind of form that limits you. You're, you know, you're going to shorter lines or they're supposed to rhyme in Hebrew. The main poetry style is that the same sounds repeat themselves in a line. So you'd have lots of sounds or lots of sounds over and over again. They don't try to rhyme. They just have the same sounds over and over again, as well as they're written in these parallel lines, meaning where you say one thing and then you say it again in a slightly different way. And and as you, um, as you listen to these things, it kind of works up a beat where you, you say one thing and then you say it again, and then you say the next thing, and you say it again. And so you get used to that. But at the same time, it also invites meditation because they say it one way, and then you say it again, and you're kind of invited to compare those two lines and see what's different, what's the same. And it's kind of um, like vision, where you use two eyeballs to look at one thing, and you see things slightly differently out of each eyeball, that, but that actually helps you see things better. Same with the Hebrew poetry. You see it's one idea talked about in two different lines, and the differences actually help you see it better. So um, um, David says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And then he says it again by saying, I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now he wasn't actually woven. He's not like a piece of cloth and it wasn't in the depths of the earth. Okay. It was inside of a woman, but what he's, he's, he's looking for imagery that, that expresses how beyond human knowledge is the creation and the formation of a person, um, and how God was intimately involved with it. Um, God, God, he says, my frame wasn't him for me. You could see me. Nobody can, until, you know, they invented ultrasounds and stuff. Um, But, you know, this is written thousands and thousands of years ago. Nobody could see a human being being formed or made. God knew, he's saying. And it is so hidden. 
inside of a woman when it begins, um, especially when there's no sign of the child in there, especially then, it's so hidden. It might as well be in the bottom of the deepest, darkest cave. It might as well be in the bottom of the deepest uh, trench in the ocean because nobody can see it, but God's there and he knows it. And he's intricately weaving somebody together. And so this is just a, a picture for David of how much God knows him. When I was being made, you saw it all. But then he says something even more stunning. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, which is, again, it's poetic, but it's also an impossibility, right? Like God saw something that wasn't there. Yeah, that's what David's saying. God, you know me so well. You were so intimately connected with me. You saw me when I wasn't here. What? Exactly. When there was nothing, when my unformed substance was there, whatever that is, you know, the lump of clay or the, when there was just, when there was, when there was nothing there, you saw me. And this is just an amazing um, picture of God's omniscience. He has known me before there was anything there. You know, if you went back to use a bit more of our scientific knowledge, if you went back like 10 generations and you knew that that person was going to be my great, 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 great grandfather, and that person was going to be my great, great, great grandmother, and somehow the the DNA that was in them that was going to be passed on and passed on, passed on God's like, yeah, he, he knew exactly which traits from these ancestors were going to come together to make me. He saw me before I was formed. He knew which great, 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 great grandparents I was going to have. And he, he saw it all. He knew me. He knew I was coming and he knew me. He saw me even in my great, great grandparents. And I don't even know 10 generations back who, who they were, not even close, but God knew. And, uh, and that as it, because of my faith in Jesus, I can join with David and saying, you knew me back then, and that brings me comfort, not fear. You knew who I was going to be, and that brings me comfort, not fear. And so David, looking at the past, now he changes and he looks at the future. He says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And this is totally amazing. Okay, so David's got this picture. He moves from like uh, uh, knitting needles working together, weaving something together in the deepest, darkest cave where nobody can ever see. And that's how, but God's there and he knows. He moves and said to an author and he says, God, your, your knowledge of me is so complete. You've written my whole story. You've got a book that uh, maybe it's just about my life. I'm not sure if that's how he's, David's thinking about it. Maybe he's thinking he's got a book of every single human being's life. And um, he says, in this book of yours, were written down all of my days before there was even one of them. And he says, the days that were formed for me. So you can kind of um, see there's a little bit of like a, a, there's an unformed substance and now there's days that are formed. He said, he says, God, all the days that you were building, that you were preparing, um, the weather, the people, the events, my failures, my successes, all these things, you wrote down like the best novelist with the right perspective and the right evaluation and the, the, the plot twists and everything. You wrote it down in your book before there was even one of my days. You saw it all. And so David's kind of looking at the future. He says, my future is just God turning the pages of his novel that he sent to the presses many, many years ago. And through, through David's faith in the Lord, 
This, this is praise. This is something he wonders at. He marvels at God. He's not afraid. God, you saw every single day of my life. And David had some bad days. He had the days of persecution under Saul. He had the days of his personal failure with Bathsheba. He had the days of trial with, with Absalom, his own son, seeking to overthrow the kingdom and destroy him. He had, some, he had some days like you and I don't even have days. Maybe you don't. I don't have days like David had. But he says, God, you wrote it all down. And I marvel at you, and this brings me comfort. I worship you. We are connected, and and I am being so near to you through these knowledges, through this knowledge, sorry, through these facts. So something to think about. Um, I just want to commend to you Psalm 139 is a psalm that you would return to over and over and over again in your relationship with God. And just let these, these truths of David meditating on God's full knowledge and full presence and how that can bring us comfort as we walk this life. So this is The Midweeks. I'm Pastor Rob. Be blessed. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you have a great Father's Day this weekend.